0: Chapter three of Cut by the County or Grace Darnell by Mary Elizabeth Braddon This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Grace's Promise of Marriage Colonel Stukeley had been a guest of Darnell Manor for nearly two months he had explored all the countryside within thirty miles looking for that ideal estate a small but perfect house with perfect stables a good old-fashioned garden and about forty acres of fertile pasture which he had dreamed of for many a year under the tropic stars and which he found almost as difficult of attainment as if he had wanted an estate in one of those very stars the colonel and his host drove many a mile in sir Allan's dog-cart with a high-stepping horse to see places which were described in auctioneer's advertisements as earthly paradises and which generally proved the kind of habitation that a man buys in an interval of lunacy with insane ideas of improvements or reconstruction and which he tries to shuffle off upon a new victim directly he recovers his senses the colonel made shorter pilgrimages in his goddaughter's pony-carriage gracie very proud of driving her warrior about the country but as yet nothing beyond the pleasure of exploring a charming landscape in the golden harvest time had resulted from their excursions Yes, there had been one result, an important one, so far as Grace Darnell was concerned. During one of these rustic jaunts, the girl took courage and opened her heart to her godfather, the most faithful and the most indulgent friend she had ever known from the days of her childhood. They went a little further than usual on this occasion, to a place which had been described as a gem of picturesque beauty, and which turned out to be a dilapidated farmhouse situated on the edge of a swamp and surrounded by meadowland that would have cost a small fortune to drain. The colonel was amused, rather than indignant, at the discrepancy between the place itself and the auctioneer's advertisement to think that we should have driven eleven miles through some of the vilest roads in wilts to look at such a god-forsaken hole as this he exclaimed after he and grace had perambulated the neglected old garden and had emerged upon the road in front of the gates there was a long wooden bridge a few paces further on spanning an expanse of watery pasture full of reed and bulrush and on this bridge the colonel stood with his arms folded on the handrail looking lazily at the cows up to their haunches in the rank verdure he turned round smiling at his goddaughter expecting her to be amused at this latest example of house agents inventive faculties but to his surprise and discomfort he found her in tears why gracie he cried tenderly what is amiss with my little girl everything grace answered vehemently i must tell some one i cannot bear it any longer to be so base so secret so false to those i love i hate and despise myself i really think i am the wickedest meanest girl in england i had rather tell you than any one else because you are always indulgent and you want to preach as papa would He would forgive me in the end i dare say but he would begin by preaching and i am so unhappy that i don't think i could bear a word my dearest gracie you mean you deceitful i would not hear your enemy say so and leave him unkicked nonsense child said the colonel cheerily laying his friendly hand upon gracie's shoulder her head was bent so that he could not see her face and her tears were dropping into the rank grass and making the meadow a little more watery for the cows "'Stuff and nonsense, my dear, some little girlish folly which you have concealed from Sir Alan, and which your own fancy has exaggerated into a matter of importance. "'It is not a little folly, Colonel, it is a big folly. "'I am engaged to be married, to a person whom my father has never seen, of whose very existence he is ignorant.' Humph! exclaimed Stookley. "'That sounds rather serious. "'But people get out of such engagements occasionally.' "'I shall never get out of mine,' answered Grace, with a heroic air. "'I would die rather than break my word.' "'Of course, of course,' said the godfather, soothingly. "'More especially, as the person to whom I am engaged is very badly off and not able to—' "'To maintain you,' interjected the colonel. "'Naturally, my dear, naturally. That is an excellent reason for sticking to him. "'And now tell me all about it. When and where did you meet this gentleman?' "'In Paris, at the Louvre, "'The big shop for gowns and bonnets and things?' "'No, the picture gallery.' "'Who introduced him to you?' "'Nobody. A mall-stick.' "'A mall introduced him?' "'Oh, Godfather, please don't be shocked.' I know how horrid it all was, how unladylike, how improper. I should have thought about it and cried over it many a time since I came home. Nobody introduced him to me. You know how fond I am of painting. I worked very hard when I was in Paris, and I got permission from Madame Startori to go and paint three times a week at the Louvre. Horrid old thing, I believe she was glad to get rid of me. She told off one of the governesses, a domestic drudge, a lady-help sort of person, to go with me, for which father paid five guineas a term extra. It was all very correct and proper so far. In fine weather we used to walk from Passy to the Louvre. In wet weather we had a fiac, which I used to pay for out of my pocket-money. Lady Darnall and father between them kept me very handsomely supplied. No doubt, said the colonel, and I have observed that Satan finds some mischief still, as Dr. Watts says, for schoolboys and girls who have too much pocket-money. Go on, Grace. One day I was copying a Madonna by Guido, not a bit like, I know, for my Madonna would come out with a purple complexion like a cabman in cold weather, and the picture was hung high. So I had to sit on a kind of platform four feet off the ground. It was very nice sitting up there and looking down at the people and at the other students. There were three or four in the room. One of them was a remarkably handsome young man, who was copying a little Woverman's, in watercolours, in a spirited, dashing style, which I thought wonderfully clever. He looked dreadfully ill, poor fellow, such hollow cheeks, such a haggard look about his dark eyes, but that naturally made him all the more interesting. Naturally, said the colonel, given a young man without sixpence, and with a marked tendency to pulmonary consumption, and granted a generous-hearted girl, the result may be calculated upon as a certainty." "'Of course you fell in love with him on the spot.' "'I am not that kind of person, Colonel. "'I don't suppose I should ever have given him a serious thought "'if it had not been for the accident which introduced us to each other. "'He talked a good deal to a frumpish little elderly woman "'who was toiling at a big altarpiece "'and who looked as if she worked for her living. "'He had such bright, winning ways "'that I could not help noticing him, a little. "'Mademoiselle Bouge, the governess, "'said he was the handsomest young man she'd ever seen. "'One day I dropped my mall-stick.' "'On purpose?' "'Oh, Colonel, how can you think so meanly of me? "'No, it was pure accident.' he flew to pick it up i thanked him and then he lingered and began to talk was he a frenchman a thorough parisian he told me in the politest way that my flesh tints were too blue and gave me some excellent hints about colour then he went back to his easel and took no further notice except a particularly graceful bow when i left the room when i went back two days afterward he was there again at another wolverman's he bowed when i went in gentlemen bow first in france you know and i cannot be so bearish as not to acknowledge his bow I got on to my platform and poor mademoiselle Bouge sat on her usual bench and stared at the pictures in her usual sleepy way. My hand trembled so that I could hardly paint. And you dropped your mall stick again. No, Colonel, how can you imagine such conduct? You have evidently a poor opinion of girls. I went on painting, wretchedly, for half an hour or so, getting that poor madonna bluer and bluer with every touch of the brush, and just as I was beginning to despair of her, the young Frenchman came over to me and asked me if I would allow him to give me a few more hints upon colouring and harmony and so on i neither said yes nor no only murmured vaguely like a shy simpleton as i was he seemed to think this gave him full permission and he took the picture in hand and told me how i had gone wrong and showed me what to do this was the beginning of our friendship which came about very gradually almost unawares but in a fortnight's time we were friends we did not talk much that would have been impossible in a public room and under the eye of mademoiselle bouge but he used to contrive to give me a letter every time we met and he was wonderfully clever at slipping the letter under my colour box or into my hand without poor old bouge seeing him He had done the same kind of thing very often before, no doubt. "'You ought not to say that, Colonel. It is not like your usual kindness. No, he told me in his very first letter that he had never been really in love before.' "'They never have,' muttered the Colonel. "'He wrote the loveliest letters. And you answered them?' "'I was obliged to answer sometimes. I hardly knew how wrong it was. You see, I had been brought up in a place where I knew everybody, and I had no idea of being afraid of strangers.' I told him who I was, and how I was finishing my education at Madame Sartori's, and he told me his own history, and that he was an orphan quite alone in the world, and that he belonged to a good old Burgundian family, and that he had come to Paris to study art. A regular bohemian, no doubt. You ought not to say that, godfather. He always looked like a gentleman, though his clothes were shabby, and though he lived on the left side of the Seine, in the students' quarters, his manners were perfect. And his name? He had a name, I suppose. His name is Victor de Camelic, answered Grace, with dignity, and I am engaged to him really and truly engaged to him that is carrying things rather far with the young man with whom you only exchanged a few words about painting and half a dozen surreptitious love-letters there were a great many more than half a dozen answered grace he wrote volumes he gave me a letter every time i went to the louvre such clever letters so eloquent so poetical i know the kind of thing he is one of those men with whom letter-writing is a complaint said the colonel your dragon miss bouge must have been a very sleepy personage to have had no suspicion of what was going on under her nose Oh, she had her suspicions, poor soul, but I persuaded her to keep my secret. I blush to say that I appealed to her meanest instincts. As how? You know the confectioners at the corner of the Rue Castiglione? No? Don't you? How I pity you! It's one of the best. I believe it is the best confectioners in Paris. I used to take bouge there every afternoon when we went to the Louvre. Now, dear, I used to say, take whatever you fancy, and the poor soul used to revel in eclairs and choux and brioches and meringues and red-currant syrup to an alarming extent how she must have missed you when you left school said the colonel laughing he could not bring himself to be very angry with his goddaughter for this folly of hers nor could he think very seriously of this interchange of love-letters with a shabby genteel frenchman the whole business seemed at the first blush too foolish for grave consideration and yet on reflection colonel stukeley told himself that it was a kind of folly which might entail considerable consequences very disagreeable if the young man were a scamp and the circumstances favoured that inference and do you mean to say gracie he began after a pause that you have engaged yourself in black and white to a man of whose surroundings and antecedents you knew absolutely nothing i knew everything she answered indignantly victor told me his whole history he was thoroughly frank he confessed that he had only just enough to live upon poorly and in a poor quarter his father had been ruined by the mexican war having been tempted to put all his money into mexican bonds when his father died victor came to paris to study art in the hope of becoming a distinguished painter like messonnier or vidal If I would promise to marry him, he told me he should have a new incentive to industry, perseverance, patience, the holiest and purest incentive. "'That fetched you,' said the colonel, and you promised. "'Not for months after I received that letter. What a very feeble person you must think me, colonel.' "'I think you an adorable little goose,' said her godfather. "'I don't think I should have consented to engage myself to him,' pursued Grace. "'Only one day I missed him in the room where he and I had both been working. "'Still at your guido?' "'Oh, no, I had gone into another room, and I was copying a flower-piece.' victor advised me to paint flowers and fruit and things dead nature as he called them rather than italian madonnas one day he was missing and the next time and the next i had not seen him for a week i felt sure that he must be ill i was very unhappy about him haunted by the image of his poor pale face at the end of the week he wrote to me under cover to mademoiselle bouge who brought me the letter to my room with a fearful countenance and told me it might have been the ruin of her to receive it which was sheer nonsense as even madame sartori's sharp eyes could not read the inside of the thick envelope the letter told you who was dying i presume said the colonel It was only a few lines, scribbled with a pencil, and written from what he thought would be his deathbed. It was a last adieu. He told me that he had no hope of seeing me again. "'You did not go to see him, I hope,' said the colonel anxiously, not knowing to what compromising step the girl might have been tempted in her inexperience of life. "'That would have been impossible. I think I might have persuaded that good old Bouge to ask for an evening out, and to go to see him for me. But there was no address to his letter. There had never been any address to his letters. "'A curious gentleman to be ashamed to own where he lived,' said the colonel. "'It was only pardonable pride, poor fellow.' He knew that my people were rich, and he was ashamed to let me know how shabby a street he lived in. As if that would make any difference to me! You answered the deathbed letter? Yes, godfather, Grace answered softly, hanging her pretty head and contributing a few more tears to the watery meadow. And what kind of letter did you write, my dear? answered the colonel gently. I am afraid it was a very foolish one. I was so sorry for him, poor fellow, so sorry to think of him being alone, dying, in a wretched lodging, and I begged him to get well, for my sake, and told him that I would be true to him in his poverty, and that if he would be content to wait for me till I could win my father's consent to our marriage, and be constant to me, as I would be to him, perhaps for years, I would give him the promise that he had so often pleaded for in those beautiful letters. "'I am very glad you made the matter contingent on your father's consent, my love,' said the colonel cheerily. "'The business is not half so bad as I thought. Was there anything more in your letter?' "'Only that, if my father should refuse his consent to our engagement, "'I would never marry anyone else. "'So far, at least, I was my own mistress. "'I might not be allowed to marry him. "'I loved my father too well to be disobedient or rebellious, "'but I pledged myself to be true to Victor, even in lifelong severance.' "Whew!" exclaimed the colonel. "'A pretty kettle of fish! "'And is that why you so unmercifully snubbed young Colchester, "'the master of the hounds, when we were out cub-hunting the other morning?' "'I'm not aware that I snubbed Mr. Colchester,' said Grace, blushing furiously.' oh but he was aware of it you treated him shamefully such a nice young fellow too and so particularly attentive to you opening gates and making way for you at fences and lingering by your side to talk when he ought to have no eyes except for those young hounds of his till at last you drove him away by sheer incivility when a man is lord of the manor and master of the hounds he hardly expects to be treated like that i have nothing to do with mr colchester's expectations answered grace tossing up her head but with tears still in the sweet hazel eyes "'It is cruel of you to talk like that, Godfather, when I have told you that I am bound to poor Victor by a most sacred promise. Did you see much more of poor Victor after the deathbed betrothal? We only met once after that, for my last term at Madame Sartori's was just coming to an end. My father and mother were coming to fetch me. Victor came to the Louvre on the very last day I painted there, looking like a ghost, poor fellow, and with a feverish light in his eyes. He ought not to have left his bed, but he was determined to see me before I went back to England. His poor hand trembled like a leaf when we shook hands.' He thanked me with tears in his eyes for my letter, and implored me to keep my promise. He said he was prepared to wait a lifetime for me, but he hoped to overcome my father's objections to our marriage in a year or so, when he should have sold a few pictures and exhibited it in the salon. "'Directly I have a little money and a shred of reputation. I shall come to Darnall and ask for your hand boldly,' he said. I told him that my father was the most generous of men, and that I had plenty of money for both of us. "'And so you parted. And you have corresponded with him ever since,' I conclude. "'We have corresponded, at intervals.' Victor writes the loveliest letters, but he is a very irregular correspondent. Sometimes a month goes by without my hearing from him, and I am tortured by the idea that he is ill or dying—dead, perhaps, while I am amusing myself playing tennis and going to parties in ignorance of his fate. And then comes a long, eloquent letter explaining his silence. He has been ill and out of spirits, too depressed to write, afraid to plague me with his misery, or he has been working at a picture like a demon, only to have it refused at the salon. "'Not a cheerful correspondent,' said the colonel. "'And now, Gracie, my pet, my darling, whom I can remember a chubby baby in a white frock and blue shoulder-knots, and with little blue shoes, how proud you were of those little shoes, now tell me, honestly, frankly, bravely, are you desperately in love with this young French painter whose face your father has never seen?' "'I was very fond of him, Colonel, or I should never have given that promise.' "'Of course not, but you have had a year and a half for sober reflection, a long time in such a young life as yours, and reflection has told you that you were very foolish to give such a promise, and you would be very glad to be released from it.' "'For my father's sake,' faltered Grace. "'Yes, I should be glad to be free from that foolish engagement, for I am afraid it would grieve my dear father, and he is so good to me, so indulgent every new kindness of his seems like a knife plunged into my heart. "'Well, my dear girl, you have two duties before you—painful, perhaps, both of them. First, to tell Sir Allan everything, just as frankly as you have told me. Secondly, to write to Monsieur Camillac, requesting him to release you from your promise.' "'Oh, no, no, Colonel, don't ask me. I could not tell my father, and I could not ask Victor to release me, not now, while he is poor and ill and unhappy. If he were to become rich, admired, famous, I would not mind asking him to set me free.' "'That is just like my generous romantic Gracie,' said the Colonel, smiling. "'You would be true to a pauper and a failure, but you would ask for your freedom from a successful painter. Well, my child, you have trusted me, and I must prove myself worthy of your confidence. Take time to think of what I said just now.' "'I feel sure that you will not be happy "'till you have made a full confession to your father "'who would not scold you a whit more severely than I have done.' "'But he would be so shocked, so grieved,' exclaimed Grace. "'I could not endure to see the grieved look in his face, "'his surprise in finding that I had kept a secret from him. "'He always praises me for my candour, "'and to find out all at once that I am a whited sepulcher. "'No, I could not bear it. "'Better to pluck up your courage, Grace, "'and take the bull by the horns.' A secret like yours cannot be kept for This monsieur Camillac is poor, an artist, and a bohemian, and he knows that you are rich and will have an independent fortune under your mother's settlement when you come of age. I suppose you told him that. I told him all about myself and my people. Well, my dear child, can you suppose that a young man in his circumstances will be patient forever, ever, will hold his peace forever ever, when he has a chance of marrying an heiress? Be sure that, however quiet he may be now, he will push his claims vigorously when you come of age, and that will be— Next year, sighed Grace." "'Then, my love, the sooner you face your difficulties boldly, the better it will be for your chances of happiness. Tell your father everything while I am on the premises, and if my Grace wants any backer with the most indulgent of fathers, she knows she has a sturdy champion in her faithful old colonel.' "'Dear Godfather, how good you are to me,' murmured Grace, lifting up the soldier's sunburnt hand and kissing it. "'And now I think those ponies of yours must have had their mouths washed out and be ready for action,' said the colonel, who did not wish to press the sinner too hard just at first, trusting to Grace's own reflections to bring about the desired result.' They walked back to the carriage in silence grace very downcast but the colonel talked of indifferent matters in his pleasantest manner all the way home and contrived to put his goddaughter into good spirits again before they reached Darnell park sir Allen rarely appeared at luncheon and to-day lady Darnell and he were both out but miss Darnell was always at her post she was not locomotive indeed she had a cat-like fondness for the house rarely extending her peregrinations beyond a cat-like pacing to and fro of the terrace in front of the drawing-room windows or a perambulation of the dewy lawns or shrubberies she might be met at all times and seasons prowling about the corridors with that velvet footfall of hers and thus it came about that nothing not the most attenuated particular of existence could occur at Starnell without dora's knowledge hardly a sentence could be spoken of which she did not hear enough to divine the drift of the speaker the servants had thus come to consider her omniscient and to fear her accordingly she was an admirable housekeeper for her whole attention was riveted upon the details of existence at Darnell. she had no joys no hopes no fears no interests outside the park gates she was not without accomplishments and she was not without intellectual culture yet the world of politics the world of art the world of the past and of the future were to her a dead letter she lived only to rule and reign in her little kingdom of Darnall. it may be conceived therefore what mental tortures she suffered on the occasion of her brother's second marriage when she saw the sceptre slipping from her grasp "'Has father driven to Scadley?' asked Grace, as she sat down to luncheon, looking very pretty in the dark grey cloth sailor gown with a coquettish terracotta velvet waistcoat, just a touch of vivid colour to set off her milk-white skin and harmonise with her ruddy gold hair. "'He has gone to London.' "'To London?' "'Yes. He and Lady Darnall started directly you were gone. They drove off in a tremendous hurry to catch the express at Scadley.' "'But father didn't say one word about it at breakfast,' exclaimed Grace. "'I believe it was quite a sudden resolution. They are to be back to dinner.' we are to dine at half-past eight colonel i hope you won't mind not i said the colonel grace and i will sit in the firelight and tell each other fairy stories it was still that pleasant autumn season when evening fires are a luxury and when home grows every day more homely my father has gone to town on business i suppose said grace sorely mystified by this unpremeditated rush to london which was so unlike her father's usual habits but why drag lady darnel with him i have not the faintest notion said dora Alan told me nothing beyond the bare fact that he was going to take Lady Darnell to town and that they would be back to dinner. He begged me to convey his apologies to you, Colonel Stukely. There was no occasion for apologies, said the Colonel. Both he and Grace knew Miss Darnell well enough to be convinced that she knew all about her brother's business in London. Those sharp ears, those acute perceptions of hers, were rarely at fault. End of chapter 3